15, verse 30. One of the many benefits of the Bible is that it gives us clear understanding of who we are. And it's really hard to navigate life for very long without actually knowing who you are and how you work. And so in all sorts of ways throughout the scriptures, God gives us information about how we should see ourselves. For instance, in the book of Genesis, you'll see, well, how does, a, how does God first, this is an interesting question to ask, how does God first start introducing people? How does God tell us about people? Not just looking at the Bible for the people that he's telling, not just reading what he's saying, but, but looking at how he describes people. And he seems to kind of have a pattern, actually, where he says, this is the person's name, this is who their father is, this is where they're from, and this is what they do. And we begin to see, as we pay attention to that level of detail, this idea of a biblical anthropology or a description of what we are and how to regard ourselves, sorts of information about discovering our true identity. And it's very interesting if you think about how Jesus came on the scene. If, you, if I were talking to someone who just wanted to figure out who Jesus was, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm just going like, to give you Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and uh, read one of these. But here's the thing I want you to answer when you read. Just, just get a little notebook and just, when you read something, ask, is this telling me who Jesus is, like what his name is? is it, what's Jesus' name? Who is his father? Where is he from? And what does he do? And of course, when Jesus comes on the scene, we realize that well, that's a kind of a, a multidimensional question. There's a two answers for Jesus to those questions. And then when he saves us, we realize that there's two answers to those questions for us too. And we have a new father and we have a new location. We have been raised with Christ and seated at the heavenly places. And we have a new calling. We're, we're supposed to be priests under the most high God and so on and so forth. So it's very helpful to be, to be thoughtful about the question of who am I? How should I regard myself? How do I work? How do I function? Of course, Proverbs is a book written from a father to the son, and, you know, it's one of the most important things we can help our kids understand, and it's something that maybe we assume that people know, but it's, it's important to tell our kids how they function, how they work. It's important to tell them what a human being actually is. And Proverbs attempts to do that and attempts to, in addition to explaining sort of how the world works, this kind and wise father is also telling his son, well, this is how you work as a person. And of course, I suppose the central message in Proverbs regarded to anthropology is, is the importance of the heart. And as the father is explaining to the son, this is what you are, this is how you work, there's just a great deal of information passed along about how important the heart is to everything else and how it is the wellspring of life and that it affects everything else. And we see that in our verse today in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 30. It says, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. Now, we're just going to walk through this text and notice a few things about the way that human beings are, about the way that you are, about the way that I am. And the first one is to just note that when it says, it uses the phrase heart and bones, it's not necessarily or mostly talking about anything literal there, but rather talking about the deepest part of us. The Bible is replete with comments about the heart and the bones as being these sort of central pieces of who we are. It wouldn't be wrong, especially for our purposes today, to just think of this as 
two different ways of describing the soul or the core of a person. So one of the things we get from Proverbs 15.30 is, is that we have this part of us, this deep part of us. And then another thing we get from this is that when this is healthy, our bodies, even our bodies are often affected. For instance, um, we're in verse 30, but if you look back at verse 13, it says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. And so there's some mysterious link within a human being whereby when the soul is healthy, it, it, it affects the body. And when a soul is unhealthy, that also affects the body. And not only does it affect the body, but it affects our whole outlook. Look at verse 15 in, in Proverbs 15. When our soul is healthy, it affects our whole outlook. Proverbs 15, 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. And so uh, something about the heart is affecting not only someone's face, but also the way that they face the world. And a cheerful-hearted person sort of lives in a place of continual feasting, thanksgiving day after day after day. So, so far we've noticed this idea that there's this center kind of core of a human being, here described as heart and bones, but also could be described as the soul or the heart or the, um, the inner being. Paul uses that phrase. We'll see that in a moment. Now, the next thing to notice in this verse in Proverbs 15.30 is that the heart isn't always healthy. The heart isn't always healthy. Notice the two re-words in verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Good news refreshes the bones. English has a lot of these re-words. Refresh, restore, recover, redeem. And the idea behind all of these re-words is that something needs to be recovered or brought back. And so one of the notions presented in this text is, is that our inner being needs to be restored and refreshed. It isn't always as healthy as it should be. And obviously we've already stipulated previously that if it's not healthy, then a lot of other things are affected by that. If it's healthy, a lot of things are affected positively by that. If it's not healthy, a lot of things are affected negatively by that. Now, the words for rejoice and refresh in the Hebrew are as follows. The, the Hebrew word for, for uh, rejoice is regladden, to make glad again. And the Hebrew word for refresh is refatten. The New American Standard, uh, this is a more literal translation, and it translates Proverbs 15.30 as, Bright eyes gladden the heart, and good news puts fat on the bones. And of course, you have to think about fat in, in, a, in an ancient scarcity kind of idea. It's, uh, first of all, it's the thing that's the closest to the organs. Most of the animals that they would consume and they'd cut open and see and so forth, they weren't carrying a lot of fat on their body, but inwardly, the, the majority of an animal's fat would be surrounding their organs. So even there, you've got this idea of health and centrality occupied there. But also, fat was essentially seen as energy, and it is energy. It has, uh, it has 100 times more energy per gram, fat does, than carbohydrates or protein. So uh, fat actually just contains more energy, and that's why if you eat a piece of bacon, you could have eaten, uh, what would you say, 200 calories, even though it's relatively light? That's because fat carries a lot of energy. So when the Bible talks about refattening, and the, the English translation is saying refreshing, it's really kind of, think. I think you can think about it as re-nourishing, but also re-energizing. So now we're beginning to develop this notion of when our souls aren't doing so well, what's the problem? Well, we need to, we need to be rejoyed 
We need to be refattened, refed, re-energized. Now, this is obviously good to know. It's good to know that you have this central nugget inside of you that affects the rest of you, that being your soul. And it's good to know that it isn't always necessary and that it affects everything. And then it's good to know that it's not always necessarily healthy. But I think it's also very important to realize that this proverb is here because it is possible for you and I to choose a path, a treatment plan, if you will, to nourish our own souls. So this proverb is given from a father to a son to say, sometimes your soul is going to languish. It's going to need re-energizing. It's going to need refreshing. It's going to need to be rejoyed. And when it, when it gets in that state, it's very important that you pay attention to it because this can really negatively affect a lot of other areas. And so when it gets into that state, you need to know what to do about it. And what should you do about it? Well, this proverb says that you can take action you yourself can take action when you are sick and anemic and languishing, when you are stuck in that state. You are not stuck in that state, but you can take action to refresh yourself. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. But that is not occurring without Paul's intention and effort. Last week we said that however we describe headship in the home, we don't want to wind up diminishing a wife's uh, management role in a home. And today I think it'd be important to say, however we talk about God's sovereign work on our spirits, we must never allow that doctrine to diminish our own responsibility to cooperate with the spirit. And Proverbs 15.30 is telling us how to cooperate with the spirit to re-strengthen, refresh our souls. You know, it's really important for Christians to learn to distinguish between the idea of earning and effort. Earning is condemned in the scriptures. Earning comes from a place of pride. You assume, this would be a, a, this is a wildly prideful assumption that we all fall into, that you could step up to the uh, negotiating table with God and have anything he'd be interested in. Um, you don't have enough of anything that he wants to earn something. And there is not enough potential in you on your best day to earn anything. So we need to learn to distinguish between earning and effort because sometimes we think that when someone's calling us to effort, they're calling us to earning. But no, earning comes from a place of pride, assuming that you could somehow negotiate a good deal with God and you can't. But effort is an expression of humility. Effort is an expression of humility and belief when God calls us to call upon his name with all of our heart, or when God tells us, if you need your heart, if you need your soul to be refreshed, here's how you do it. Effort comes from saying, you've told me that I can do this, so I will believe you, and I will endeavor to do it. So we have this interior part of us, our soul. It's very important to the rest of us. It isn't always healthy. And this proverb is giving us a treatment plan for that. And what's the treatment plan? We need to feed ourselves a diet of truth and beauty. That's what this proverb is commending. The treatment plan that this father is prescribing to the son when the son finds his soul in need of rejoying and refreshing is a treatment plan, a diet, if you will, of truth and beauty. In his book, Spiritual Depression, which I'm kind of prepared to say is uh, Mount Rushmore, top five Christian books written of all time. 
something like that to me, I think. Uh, in, in that book, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes the following, and I pray that you'll listen to this carefully because this is some of the best counsel you will ever receive. He writes, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, and this is all connected to Jones's uh, discussion of Psalm 42, which we will look at in a moment. This man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. And he says, why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living. Now, this is not a man given to exaggeration, so don't miss what he just said there. The main art, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. Get a hold of yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He is also the health of my countenance and my God. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about, okay, well, how, what practically, what practically does this verse commend to us in order to fulfill what, or in order to engage in what Jones calls the great art, the main art of spiritual living. And I would tell you that I think it's the choice to engage in a deliberate intake of truth and beauty in community. Perhaps you've seen that phrase on our website or on a canvas that's over the coffee area. It's a very important phrase to me. I think it summarizes not only what the church could be, but what the church should be. I think it's a mission statement. I think it's hope to those who are languishing. I think it's an aspirational kind of idea. And Proverbs 13, 1530 is one of the places where this idea is presented most explicitly. So let me help you see how I'm reaching that conclusion. Truth and beauty in community. How is this text pointing us there? Well, I get the beauty portion of the phrase from, uh, I get the beauty portion from the phrase in verse 30, 
the light of the eyes. The light of the eyes. What does that mean? What does it mean, the light of the eyes? Well, Matthew Poole, another very old commentator on this verse, says this. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Not so much the visive power, that's the, the ability to see strong and clear eyesight, though this is a great mercy, and from the Lord, and to be prized, and does give joy to the heart. But rather, this is what Poole, and this is what I agree with, Poole thinks is the light of the eyes. The objects seen by the light of the eyes, green gardens, flowing rivers, pleasant meadows, rising hills, lowly vales, herbs, plants, trees, birds, beasts, creatures of every kind, and particularly that grand luminary and fountain of light, the sun. So what my soul is languishing, it's not as healthy as it should be, what do I do? Number one, I need to engage in what I'll call the spiritual discipline of beauty intake. And I want you to understand something here. This is a spiritual discipline. It's a choice. It's a choice that you'll make. I was so delighted the other day to open up a book on spiritual disciplines and find the very first chapter, the very first discipline discussed to be sleep. When talking about spiritual disciplines, many books dismiss or overlook those that are considered to be most mundane, but also those are the most fundamental to spiritual thriving. And I'm not going to talk about sleep today, but I'll talk about another thing that people often neglect to, honestly, the sickness of their own souls, and that is they have yet to, no matter how old they are, yet to develop a spiritual discipline of noticing beauty. And if you will do this, you will always be feeding your souls something. And that's a very good thing. You could call it the spiritual discipline of beauty intake. You can call it the spiritual discipline of noticing. One contemporary theologian wrote the following about his hobby of bird watching. Now, you need to imagine that this is, you know, a certain aged man who has decided to become a bird watcher. And he is already a theologian, which is kind of a kind of bird watching. But you need to imagine that he's also a professor because he is, and he's talking to 20-somethings, and he is emphatic on this. Listen to this. Bird watching. What could possibly be so important about bird watching? This. <laughs> it trains you to pay exquisite attention to something that has always been right in front of you. You discover the subtle differences between kinds of warblers and thrushes and sparrows, and you find out that they all have names and unique songs. All of a sudden, you begin to see, really see these birds all the time. And you begin to hear their songs, their amazing music. Not because they weren't there to see or hear before, but because you had never really paid attention before. What, is, what does Jones want us to do when he tells us to speak to our souls? This, th these two things are extremely related. I hope you're seeing the connection. He writes and continues, it opens up a whole new world, and the new world it opens up is not just about birds, because once you learn how to pay attention to the glory of birds, birds that have always been there, you begin to wonder what else you've been missing, what else you haven't been paying attention to. And so one of the ways to nourish your soul is to learn to notice the beauty that God has already placed all around you. Now, let's talk about some practical ways to develop the discipline 
the spiritual discipline of beauty intake. The first one is uh, look at the sun. Look at the sun. Matthew Poole in that commentary called it the grand luminary and fountain of light. Did you know that Ecclesiastes 11.7, which is certainly a book uh, written by someone struggling with depression, says, uh, maybe not, but he says in, in verse, 11, verse 7 of chapter 11, light is sweet and pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. You, you might be sitting there thinking, you know, I came to church today to hear a sermon about looking at the sun. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. And uh, many times when I preach things, I feel a little sketchy as to whether or not I'm in fulfillment of what I preach. But I will tell you, it has been my practice for a number of years to get up every morning to go outside and look at the sun. And I can tell you that it actually does great benefit. Uh, Dr. Andy Hu Andrew Huberman, some of you are familiar with him, some of you might listen to his podcast. He, he is emphatic on this point. He says, getting sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning is absolutely vital to mental and physical health. It is perhaps the most important thing that any and all of us can and should do in order to promote metabolic well-being, promote the positive function of your hormone system, and get your mental health steering in the right direction. So yeah, one basic application of persistent beauty intake is if the sun happens to be visible, which, you know, it usually is, take a moment and just pause and look at this thing that is making life on this earth possible. Just take a moment and think, oh my goodness, what is going on here? What kind of magical world do I live in where I am occupying a sphere that is essentially placed next to this massive fireplace moving through space-time? Crazy. But perhaps even more practical because you can do it more often is something I would just call beauty snacking. You must train your mind to look for beauty like a hungry person looks for food. You need to learn to snack on beauty. You know, if you were an ancient traveler moving through a landscape, you know, you didn't have time. You couldn't store food. Uh, you could really just, were always looking, like, are there any berries over there? Or is there anything over here I could eat? And so on and so forth. And you're, you're, you're essentially just grazing through your environment. This is what you were created to do in regards to God's beauty. He has put it all around you so much as he has put it all around you. You should be looking at it like a little, little power pellets, Pac-Man style. Beauty there, beauty there, beauty there, beauty there. Engage in the spiritual discipline of beauty snacking. Now, there are three theological ideas related to the intake of beauty. And the first one is when you notice beauty, you are imitating God. You know, in Genesis 1, in our versions that we typically read, we see after God creates something, it says, and he saw that it was good. Uh, but, the, uh, but the Septuagint, the Greek translation, actually says, and he saw that it was beautiful. And the word good in the Hebrew has all sorts of connotations where these two things are not in contradiction with one another. So when you take moments out of your day to acknowledge the beauty around you, you are doing the very thing God did right before he said, let us make man in our own image. And so it's very possible that when you are not doing this, you are less human. You are less of what God called you to be, created you to be, than when you are doing this. 
This also gives us a sense of how to define beauty. You know, <laughs> I fell down that rabbit hole for a little bit, and my goodness, how complex it has become to define beauty. And what's really interesting about walking with God is, is that all of our epistemology, the, the, the way we know things, it's all relational. And so, well, how do I define beauty? How do I know what beautiful is? It's like, if God thinks it's beautiful, then it's beautiful. And that really opens up a whole new world. And it also closes certain worlds, if you know what I mean, fellas. So, and finally, another theological point, in your beauty snacking, be sure to give glory to God. Be sure to follow the, the breadcrumbs of beauty back to their source. We're not just noticing beautiful things. We're actively attributing them back to the Lord. And this is your job. This is what you were called to do as priests under the Most High God. You're called to walk throughout the world declaring his glory and ownership over all things. You know, the Scottish Presbyterians used to pray after they ate their meal. And in many ways, what I'm calling you to do is to snack on beauty all day, looking, looking, looking. And then every time you see something that's beautiful, take a moment and say, thank you, Lord. I honestly believe that if you will just go do this, you would be shocked. What you would be like as a person a year from now. Don't sleep on this. It sounds small. Please. The exhortation would be something like the slugger drops his hand in the dish and won't even bring it up to his mouth. You have been told this morning, you have been told a simple thing you can do to change your life. Now bring your hand up to your mouth and go do this. So the, the, the prescription, I said, is truth and beauty in community. It's like, okay, there's where beauty is. It's the light of the eyes. What about truth? Where does that come in? Well, the next part of the verse seems pretty obviously about that. Um, it says, the, the, next, the first part of the verse, the light of the eyes brings, uh, re rejoices the heart. And then the next part, good news refreshes the bones or literally puts fat on the bones. In addition to taking in beauty, we should also take in truth. Now, I actually happen to not believe that these things are very separate. But I'm going to treat them in this conversation as being separate. So it is my position, and I want to, I want to see if I can help you see this, that for the Christian, all truth winds up being good news. Let me walk you through that. Because what I want you to be able to see is, is that you are not short on good news. You are not short on beauty. You are not short on good news. You could conceivably be in a landscape short on beauty, by the way. This happens in war zones and whatnot. And thank God we're not there, and you should make the most of it while we're not there. But even if you were conceivably short on physical beauty to admire, the Christian is never short of good news. Philippians 4.8, Paul, who is writing from prison, by the way, says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Oh my goodness, I could talk about a bunch of different, we could go down a bunch of different trails here, but I, it's for the sake of time, I want to deal with one particular issue related to the call to intentionally pursue good news as a means of refreshing your heart. And I want to think about what Paul just told us to do. 
And I want to ask this question, does this mean we shouldn't think about hard things or difficult things? Is Paul telling us to just take our mind off of difficult things and to focus on things that are just evidently good? I don't think so. I don't think this is telling us that we shouldn't think through hard th- think about hard things or difficult things. I think it's telling us we should think all the way through them, though. And here again, I can tell you, is deep wisdom that can really change your life. Most of the time when we think through hard things, we're just not going far enough in our thinking. I'm going to give you an example. Suppose you're going through a real financial crisis. Should you just ignore it? I've tried that. Didn't work out very well. No. I, I, I tried that route. <laughs> Didn't work out very well. Now, you might say, well, my financial crisis isn't lovely or commendable or excellent, so I will just not think on these things. <laughs> um, and I would say, no, hold on. In addition to that being like practically a bad proposition, I think you think you're thinking about these things. You're not actually thinking. You're ruminating, which is different than thinking, but I'll I'll get into that. If you think all the way through your situation, and all the way meaning all the way back to God, you can acknowledge all the facts of your financial situation. You can say, this is what's wrong, and this is why it's wrong, as best I understand. And you can think through the various difficulties that lie ahead as a result of what is wrong. But you've got to keep thinking. You've got to keep going through the thought all the way. Because there are more facts to be had, weightier facts to be had. Namely, that you are God's child, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he has, brought, he has bought you with the precious blood of his son, And that if he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for you, how will he not also freely give you all things? A significant percentage, I mean, here's another way this has worked out for me. A significant percentage of my financial struggles that I've faced have come as a result of God's blessings. So here I am, and by that I mean caring for children, caring for a church. And here I am. Thinking, think, catch me, catch me in my foolishness here. Not think, thinking, I'm thinking, but I'm not really thinking. What kind of good thinking am I engaged in when I worry about providing for blessings that God provided? That makes no sense. What kind of thinking am I engaged? I'm not thinking. That's not the right word to describe what's happening there. If I'm thinking about how to provide for things that God has provided, see the good news gets buried very quickly. Because it's not because we're overthinking these things. It's because we're underthinking them. We're not thinking thoroughly enough. Another piece of financial struggles come from bad decisions. And it's easy to get stuck there. Well, again, it's, we don't need to distract ourselves by, by just thinking about only positive things. Let's just work through this until we get to the good news. And the good news is, is that how has God responded to my bad decisions in the past? No bad financial decision I've ever made is as bad as the way I treated him. That's my worst decision ever. And how did he respond to that terrible decision? Well, he sacrificed his son for me. 
You see, it's not so much about distracting yourself and not thinking about hard things. It's about thinking hard things all the way through to the end. We do need good news to fatten our weary bones, but the solution really lies in ignoring the facts. And it, it really lies in finding all of the facts, all of the facts, all the way down. And the solution, to put it another way, is to take every thought captive and make it obey King Jesus. The solution isn't to think less, but to think more, or to think better, I suppose you could say. Another way to think about this is sometimes let's think of let's think of our circumstances as paragraphs we're reading in the story of our lives. And um, we get to a paragraph and it starts off with a really hard and rough sentence. Um, and we get stuck on it and we keep reading it over and over again. Some terrible circumstance appears to have emerged in our life. It's the first sentence in a new paragraph, a new chapter in our life, if you will. And we just start we're like records that get stuck on the one sentence. And we're just boom, 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 repeating it over and over and over again. And God just needs to elbow, fawn style, the uh, record player and get the stuck unstuck. And you'll hear the rest of the song. And when you play the song all the way through, sure, the first line was rough, but it always ends in joy. And so the truth is, is that it's all good news for us. We just got to read far enough into the story to see how this rough circumstance or this difficult sentence finally reemerges to be again and again and again good news. It always ends in good news. A while back, I talked about how people walk around, people that think they struggle to pray, they walk around with half-formed prayers loaded in their heads. What's a half-formed prayer? A half-formed prayer is, here's the problem. Here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. And you've got half-started prayers just like throughout your brain. And, and really, all you need to do, you're, you're almost there. You've almost finished. All you need to do is say, help me, God. And then you've got an actual prayer. You've turned a worry into a prayer. And in the same way, we walk around with all of these half-formed thoughts, merely identifying the difficulties. But we need good news. We, we can't let our lives live on this rumination of the bad news, the bad news, the bad news, the bad news. And that doesn't get fixed by distracting ourselves. It gets fixed by listening to the rest of the song, of reading all the way through the paragraph and realizing at the end of every single one of these hard things, it's just more glory. That's what we have in Christ at the, every, at the end of every, there can be some rough paragraphs in life full of many, many dark and difficult sentences. Keep reading. It will end with a laugh. It will end with a smile. It will end with a song. It will end with joy. And when you read the Psalms, don't just read the Psalms for what they're saying. Read the Psalms for how they are thinking, and you'll see this very thing. You'll see a rough thought on the beginning, and then the author of the psalm working his way through the thought until he gets to the good news. So this is a glorious benefit for us in Jesus. We never have to look at anything as if we only understood Friday but not Sunday. 
You know what I mean? Like, like, after the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have been given this massive leg up that allows you to see every Friday from the perspective of Sunday. Friday, Jesus is dead. Rough sentence. Sunday, he's alive. You've already been given the actual key to thinking through every problem. You've already been given the key to finding the good news by faith at the end of every hard time. There's always going to be a Sunday in Christ. If you're in Christ, you'll always get out of the grave. You'll always see the end resolve. Well, one psalm would say, whatever you do in your sowing with tears, it'll always end in reaping with gladness. You'll, you'll always be happy at the end. That's what it means to be his. Every story resolves in joy. And so you need good news, and it's not necessarily a great idea to simply engage in a manufactured fictional world full of only positive and happy things. You don't need to do that. You can grab the stuff that's right in front of you, and if you think, all, think it all the way through, you will find... You'll find plenty of good news. So to review, you've got this soul. The health of that thing affects pretty much everything else. And it isn't always healthy. But you can do work to nurse it back to health. And that involves a diet of truth and beauty in community. Now, I've said something about beauty and I've said something about truth. What, where am I getting this community from? Let me illustrate it this way. All over the United States, there are these beautiful vistas or overlooks or scenic, scenic overlooks, I think that's what they're called. And, you know, it's very interesting that the history of these places, because essentially it all starts word of mouth. Jedediah, you know, back in 1810, stumbled upon this cliff or something. And he's like, I'll tell you, there's a, you know, down there by that one creek and that tree and so on, there's this beautiful overlook. And then, like, all of Jedediah's friends heard about it, and they started going there, too. And, and so some of the earliest paths in the settling of this country were just to look at beautiful things, you know? And eventually, uh, that, that path winds up being a road, and then there's guardrails and so on and so forth. But there has been this, this history all over the world of people figuring out where to go to reliably see beauty. Because that's the great thing about vistas and word of mouth. You, it's not going to change. Like you can't. Jedediah tells his friends, "Hey, there's this beautiful, this beautiful view of the river, and if they go, you know, and there's visibility that day, that 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 view is going to be there." Well, I want to suggest to you that the local church is meant to be the most reliable vision of beauty there is on the face of the earth. So here's here's how I form that. The most beautiful thing in the visible world to God is the bride of Christ. In the book of Revelation, we see all sorts of beautiful things presented, but the crown of all of that beauty is the bride herself. Remember how we said that beauty should just be defined by what God sees as beautiful? There's nothing that God sees as more beautiful than his bride. There's nothing he's worked harder for and paid more for to beautify. It, was, it, it did not cost the blood of Jesus Christ to make a beautiful view overlooking the Mississippi River on an 800-foot bluff. It did not cost the blood of Christ to, to throw up the Rocky Mountains. 
But it did cost the blood of Christ to beautify the harlot at the beginning of Proverbs into the righteous woman at the end. And so nothing has been more expensive to God than beautifying his bride. And so he's not going to do that halfway. And he sees his bride as exquisite. He sees the church as the most beautiful thing. In Psalm 16, 3, this is God speaking. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And so repeatedly in the scriptures, you'll see, well, what does God think is beautiful? And he says time and time again that his most treasured and beautiful possession are his people. Martin Lloyd-Jones mentioned Psalm 42, where David is, you know, feeding his soul. Well, what does he feed his soul when it comes to beauty? Because that's my formula as it hold up in Psalm 42. His soul is in a languishing state. What does he feed it? Look what he writes in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So David's soul is languished and thin. How does he, re how does he refresh it? What vision of beauty does he grab? The church. The people of God assembled to praise God's name. Last week I said that in the uh, two hours that we spend together, this is the most important place on earth. And then like really for most of the time, the home is the most important place on earth. And I suppose that I should also say, I think probably the home is supposed to be the second most beautiful place on earth, but the church is reliably supposed to be the vista we can go to over and over again and nourish our souls with the beauty that is there. But so much of beauty comes down to noticing. You can come in here week after week and not see all of the birds, not see all of the beauty. You know, I've been all over the world and I'm a sky looker. I always like looking at the sky. I always feel better when I look at the sky. I love being in places with, you know, big sky country I love. And did you know that Kansas's skies are amongst the most beautiful skies I've seen in the whole world? But it's something that you may not even pay attention to, especially if you've lived here a long time. And sometimes it takes an outsider to say, well, this, these are pretty, pretty skies. Likewise, this local church is actually, in terms of seeking out beauty, observing it, being nourished on it, the assembly of the saints at this local church is a reliable vista you can go to week after week after week, paying attention to what is actually here and thereby nourishing your soul. Well, what about, so that's truth in community, or beauty in community. What about truth in community? Well, in addition to being the most beautiful place in the world, the church is also described by Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 as the pillar and foundation of truth. And the church is obviously the place where the good news is obviously taught. But here's another thing. How are you going to get your record unskipped? What's the plan? Do you guys know what I mean by records? <laughs> They're back. I just don't know how back they are. You know, I have a new record player that my kids got me, and it, it never skips. It's just, it, I don't know what's going on there. Maybe the records are just better. But uh, it used to be a real thing. You'd, we, we would go to the library and rent records when I was a kid. 
and uh, we would listen to stories on records. And you know, you'd be working through your Jungle Book or whatever, and then you'd go, and it would just repeat like the same little sentence over and over and over again. And you'd have to get up and pick up the arm and then move it back past that spot, and then so that you could hear the rest of the story. And friends, you're constantly, I'm constantly getting the record stuck on the negative. And we do need people in our lives to say, let me get you to the next section of the story. You're not, you're not actually thinking about this well. You're dwelling on one sentence, and you need help to be told that you are dwelling on one sentence and that there's more to the story. Where does that happen? What's your plan for that? That's, a, that's an extremely important thing. And no one can go very far in life without having that. Well, the church is the place where that happens. Not simply through preaching or singing, you know, exceptionally biblical songs, but, but, but more than that, by talking to one another and getting unstuck so that we can move on and be reminded that this does, this always does actually end in joy. So here's a question for you. Can you say with Paul that your inner self is being renewed day by day? Or would you say that your soul is languishing, that it needs to be refreshed and rejoyed? How would you know? Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways to think about this. I mean, one of the probably the wisest ways to think about this is just to assume it could always get joyder, right? It's probably a safe assumption. Another way to look at this would be like, well, am I, am I engaging in these two habits that Am I, am I feasting daily on truth and beauty? Because if not, then, you know, that'd be a good indicator your soul's not so healthy. You might even just look at your own face. Proverbs 15, 13 says that a glad heart makes a cheerful face. I've learned that, like, man, I've gotten really wrinkly in the past few years. I blame all of you, by the way. But uh, I'm pleased to see something happen when I smile at myself in the mirror all those wrinkles, that's what all those are. Think about that for a minute. God has been so good to me for so many years that his goodness has worn lines into my face like a river wears canyons into the rock. Like, that's a great thing. So the Bible says that if you have a glad heart, you have a cheerful face. Well, that would be one way of knowing how your soul is doing. Another one would be, would you say that you are more or less living in a continual feast? Proverbs 15, 15, the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Does that sound like your experience? Well, if not, this is not one of those moments where we get stuck. This is simply one of those moments where we go to the next step of the plan. You have a treatment plan, and it really does work. Be diligent in your intake of truth and beauty. Look at the sun whenever you can. Spend your day beauty snacking. Be like God who says this is beautiful and that is beautiful and this is beautiful. Use God's definitions for beauty. Be sure to give glory to God when you see beauty. And don't forsake the assembly of the saints. It's the most beautiful place, the most reliably beautiful place in the world. And in terms of truth, you just need to think further down the road. Because it always ends in a song. This is what Lloyd-Jones comments about David. In Psalm 42, David says, 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed? And then he, real quick, when, when Angela was sleep training the kids, she has a really strong will, my wife does. And uh, it's worked out very good for us in many areas. But uh, she would just tell the kids, like, of course, they couldn't understand her, but she'd be like, you're not going to win. Right, and so she just took it personally. Like you're not, you little, you little thing. You're not going to win. I will defeat you. And this is what Jones is talking about that David's doing to his soul in Psalm 42. You're not going to win. Despair. You're not going to win. And David says it this way: Why are you disturbed? Why are you despaired? And then he says, I will yet praise him. The help of my countenance. And my God. And so the church is the place that the good news is both proclaimed and embodied, and the place where our records get unskipped. So let's move into thinking about communion and just ask this question why is it that the church is truth and beauty in community? Why why is that happening? Well, to quote Psalm 46, 4 through 5, because the reason why the church is truth and beauty in community is because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The church is a place of truth and beauty and community because the triune God, who, by the way, is eternal truth in, in community, eternal truth and beauty in community, the church is truth and beauty and community because the Trinity is the river that flows in the midst of us. The triune God, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now let your eyes rest on the beauty of this sacrament and let the truth that I mentioned already refresh your bones. If God did not spare his Son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all good things? As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come and partake of God's truth and beauty.